This is a view from the couch. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. We're back after about three weeks. Uh, it's been a while. Uh, busy month of December for me. It's been a lot of fun. But now we are past Christmas. I hope you and your family had a wonderful Christmas. And now it's time to get ready for the best part of bowl season and the college football playoff that's coming up. And that's what we're going to talk about on the show today. I've got uh, a run-through starting today as I record this on the morning of the 28th. We've got a bowl viewing guide to cover you for the rest of this weekend and into next week. All the best games, the times, who to watch, and a, a couple of thoughts about each of those games. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what would have been if the 12-team playoff was in effect for this season, what those matchups would look like, where they would be happening, and kind of set up what that tournament would look like. As we know, we only have one more year after this year of the four-team playoff before we get that 12-team playoff. So I think it's a, a fun exercise to at least consider what that would look like. And then obviously the bulk of the show today is going to be a deep dive on Georgia and Ohio State in the Peach Bowl, the college football playoff semifinal on Saturday night at 8 o'clock. So hope you enjoy the show today. Thank you so much for listening. Let's get started. All right, let's get started with the bowl viewing guide. As I said, I am, uh, I've, I've had a hard time with the kids home the last couple of weeks, finding time to record. So uh, got a little bit of time in the middle of the day today. So we're going to give this a go. Uh, we're going to start obviously today, uh, the December 28th. We've got the Liberty Bowl at 530 this afternoon, Kansas and Arkansas. So Kansas, obviously one of the big stories in the early part of the season, hosted game day. Got some big wins early in the year. They fell off a little bit. They ended up 6-6. Six and six. Arkansas, kind of similarly, um, played really well, was ranked early in the season, and then just struggled in that gauntlet of an SEC West. So I really am interested in this game. You know, I, I tried to do as much research as I could, but a lot of these games are going to be affected ultimately by who's interested in playing in it, and then who's actually playing, right? You know, you've got the teams that are playing, but it's, it's K.J. Jefferson playing. And I tried to research that. Uh, I'll be honest, I didn't try a lot, but I did try to look it up real quick, and I couldn't figure it out. Not sure about this game, but I just think Liberty Bowl, it should be fun up in Memphis. Um, Arkansas probably wins this game, but what a season for Kansas. And they, they, they deserve some flowers for really becoming – a decent team after being probably the worst team in college football or major college football for the last couple seasons. That leads us into two different games that we have tonight that I think are worth keeping an eye on. I think the Holiday Bowl may be one of the most fun games of the entire bowl season. That's going to be out in San Diego tonight. It'll kick off at 8 o'clock on Fox. That's number 15 Oregon against North Carolina. Oregon and North Carolina bringing the quarterbacks back. And I think that's why this game is going to be so interesting. Bo Nix is going to come back for Oregon. Drake May uh, will be playing and coming back for North Carolina. There was some controversy about Drake May, whether or not he was going to transfer. He is not. He is 
you know, he, he's going to stay at UNC, and that means UNC's offense is going to continue to be very good. Uh, this game is going to resemble a PlayStation game, I think, in a lot of ways because both of these teams have dynamic offenses. Neither of these teams have any kind of defense, so it should be uh, a lot of fun if you can stay up. I think it's going to – it probably won't end until around midnight because there's going to be a lot of scoring. Uh, the over-under is at 75. Take all the money you got for Christmas and put it on the over. Um, the other game tonight is the Texas Bowl. That game's played in Houston. You've got Texas Tech versus Ole Miss. That's at 9 o'clock tonight on ESPN. Lane Kiffin, rumored to be doing a lot of things. Maybe go to Auburn. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Lane Kiffin re-upped at Ole Miss. He's going to be there. And uh, Texas Tech coming off a pretty average season, but they spoiled Texas this season by beating them when uh, Quinn Ewers was out uh, early in the year. So that game is at 9 on ESPN. Tomorrow, December 29th, we'll start out with the Cheez-It Bowl in Orlando, Oklahoma, coming off what has to be considered probably their worst season in maybe 20 years. Um, and they're playing Florida State, who's having who had the best season they've had probably in a decade or close to a decade um, since Jameis left. Uh, Florida State's ranked 13th in the final college football playoff rankings. That'll be interesting, and we talk about that in a few minutes. This game tomorrow is at 5.30 on ESPN. Florida State, I mean, just absolutely remarkable, the turnaround that they've had this year. Um, really appreciate what they've done. It was a blue blood program for a long time that had just really struggled to get going. And, and it kind of seemed like they had entered a place where they were just obsolete in modern college football. And the ACC needs Florida State, the ACC, Clemson, Miami, they they need these teams to be what they have historically been. Um, and, and I think Florida State coming back, I think even Clemson fans would say, hey, we, we'd rather Florida State be good. We want to beat them every year, but you'd rather beat a good Florida State team than, you know, a four and eight Florida State team. So uh, Florida State's a nine and a half point favorite in this game. They will win. They will cover. Oklahoma had a great recruiting class, so things may be getting better for Brent Venables. That's one piece of this game that's at least in my head familiarity. Now, uh, Norvell has only been there. This is only his second year, so Norvell only matched up with Venables in last year's Clemson and Florida State game. However, Florida State as a team is a team that uh, Brent Venables at Oklahoma very familiar with. So maybe that makes it a little closer, but I, I just think Florida State got a chance to get to a 10th win this year. Um, and, and I think they'll take care of that tomorrow in Orlando. And then tomorrow night, another really interesting game that I wish didn't start so stinking late. Nine o'clock on ESPN, you got the Alamo Bowl in San Antonio, number 20 Texas and number 12 Washington. Yet again, you've got another game where both quarterbacks are coming back and there's some really interesting stuff going on in this one Michael Penix Jr. the quarterback for Washington um, coming back he should be playing Quinn Ewers had a really strong season not perfect but you know he was a a redshirt freshman playing uh, as the starter for most of the year except for the time he was hurt but just last week Arch Manning officially signed his letter of intent so he is at Texas he was not going to be at he I don't think he's going to be at this game. Maybe he's going to be at the game. He's obviously not playing. Um, so that quarterback dynamic going into next year, is Ewers the guy? Does Arch Manning come in and have to play right away? Injury stuff plague Ewers this year. Is that a factor in it? Um, so I, I think this game is going to be very interesting and a lot of fun. I actually like Washington uh, to win this game. Friday, it gets really good. 
December 30th, you've got the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville. You've got Notre Dame, number 21 in the final rankings against number 19, South Carolina. That game kicks off at 3.30 on ESPN. Nobody finished the season hotter than South Carolina, beating Tennessee and Clemson uh, in the last two games of the year to ruin each of those teams' playoff hopes. Notre Dame is is favored by two in this game. Um, I'm not totally sure why. Notre Dame uh, bounced back after kind of a shaky middle part of the season. They they finished pretty strong, but South Carolina just – if they can continue – any amount of what they had done against Clemson and uh, Tennessee, I, th- I think you're going to see South Carolina win this. In my head, from where they started to where they finished, I think South Carolina is going to be very motivated. Spencer Rattler's announced he's coming back next year. So I-, I think this is a real jumping off point for South Carolina as they kind of kick off their 2023 season uh, on Friday night. And then the first of the New Year's Six games gets played on Friday night. At 8 o'clock on ESPN, it's the Orange Bowl from Miami. Number 6 Tennessee versus number 7 Clemson. As soon as I saw the playoff uh, you know, the, the playoff show, I, I didn't get to watch it live, but when I saw the, the, the other bowl games be announced, I thought this is the, the one that I wanted to make sure I could see because Tennessee had a great season. They, they really did. They lost to Georgia in a game that it just seemed like the stars were aligned, the the crowd, everything uh, was aligned for Georgia to win that game. But then the heartbreaking loss to South Carolina where they just got absolutely punked, and ultimately, you know, they they got injured. And so now Joe Milton comes into this game as the quarterback, an opportunity, uh, you know, to kind of place his stamp as the starting quarterback for this team. On the other side, you had a whole season – where DJU played pretty bad, then he played pretty good, then he played pretty bad again, and the whole time everybody's sitting back and saying, Dabo, what about the freshman? You got Kay Klubnick there. Uh, he continued to put Kay Klubnick in the game in awful situations for a young quarterback. He finally made the switch uh, in the ACC title game, and, and Kay Klubnick goes crazy. Kay Kay played great and Clemson won the ACC championship dispatched UNC and now DJU is transferring it seems like going to Oregon State um and Clemson is is ready to go so I actually think unlike some of the other bowl games we're going to talk about over the next few minutes and some of them we already talked about I think this one actually matters if if Tennessee's year ends with a loss against South Carolina in, you know, the second to last game of the year, and then they lose to Clemson in a bowl game. This year, that that was so great for so long. They were ranked number one when they came to Athens uh, in the college football playoff rankings. If that season ends with three losses, it, it it's a step forward for Tennessee, but it's not what it could have been, especially with the turnover. Jalen Hyatt's not playing in this game. He's already announced he's going to the NFL. Obviously, the quarterback situation is in flux, so you know Joe Milton's going to be there. They've got a big five-star, the number two recruit in the nation, Nico something. I can't say his last name, and I didn't write it down. Um, he He's going to probably be at this game now that early enrollees can be at the game. Um, so I think this actually matters because I think for both Tennessee and Clemson, you're playing a quality opponent but it's really a chance to jump into the next season, get a a really good feeling to end this year, get into 
spring practice and really establish yourself as a, as a contender next year, especially for Clemson. It, it just seemed like something changed in that ACC title game, the entire vibe around the program that had kind of been weird for the last two years. It seemed like, okay, hey, this guy at quarterback, it can seem like what Clemson was when Clemson's been one of the best teams in the nation. Now, the only thing Clemson has going against it is their coach is turning into a little bit of a clown. And so that's a that's an off-season conversation. Uh, but if you don't know what I'm talking about, just, just Google some of the stuff he said on uh, signing day. Not even that I necessarily disagree with some of the sentiment, but this guy is is becoming more and more tone deaf, in my opinion. Um, and I, I just wonder if he's going to be able to get himself out of the way enough to allow Clemson's players, who are, are very good, to, to return to where they should be uh, at the top of college football. So a really fun day on Friday leads us into the marquee day for college football in this uh, bowl season. We've got the Sugar Bowl that'll kick off on New Year's Eve at noon. Uh, that's in New Orleans. You've got number five Alabama versus number nine Kansas State. This is Kansas State, the Big 12 champion. Don't forget, Big 12 champion Kansas State uh, playing Alabama. Now, there is no bowl game that I changed my mind on quicker than this one. I I was Kansas State, just in all the little brackets that you do, or I guess the bowl bonanza, whatever you call it. You go through and you just pick the winner. You pick the winner with the spread. You do the confidence points, whatever you do. Kansas State all day. Why would Alabama be motivated to play this game? That that was it. Uh, and then Will Anderson and Bryce Young announced that they are going to play in this game. Now, neither has announced that they're coming back next season. So it seems that this is most likely the exception to the rule. Now, if you've got players that are going to the NFL, they don't play in the bowl game. Uh, these two guys have said they want to play at least one more time with their teammates. And so... I have switched 100% the other way. Alabama's going to boat race Kansas State, I think. Uh, I think you're going to have some guys that obviously the leaders on both sides of the ball want to be there. And they want to be there so much that they are, frankly, taking a risk in playing in this game. And as such, I just think that's going to motivate the heck out of the rest of the team. I think Alabama will absolutely destroy Kansas State. Uh, And then that leads into the semifinals. So obviously... Georgia and uh, Ohio State are the second of the two semifinals. That kicks off at 8 p.m.-ish, whenever the first game ends, let's be honest. Um, The first game is TCU number three versus number two Michigan. That's 4 o'clock on ESPN. Michigan's a a 7.5-point favorite. Uh, To me, that seems like a lot of points, okay? TCU... Man, I, I, I just don't know. All year you were waiting on them to lose. And then when they finally lost in the Big 12 championship game, they lost in a way that made you feel like they maybe didn't lose. I mean, they did. They're definitely not the Big 12 champions. Kansas State won that game, but it was in overtime. And and you just wonder if Sonny Dykes didn't cost his team a little bit there because Max Duggan just seemed to be willing to do whatever it took to win that game. And in some of the most critical moments – they took the ball out of Max Duggan's hands, and and he had been effective running the ball. He had been effective throwing the ball, and then down on the goal line at the end of regulation, they 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 didn't put Max Duggan. They didn't put the ball in Max Duggan's hand. They ultimately ended up losing in overtime. Um, all year, TCU just showed this incredible ability to fight back, and a lot of the you know the 
the playoff committee chairman that would speak every week, um, he kind of said that the committee saw that as a little bit of a weakness for TCU. And, and I agree. When you look over the course of the season, something to be said for not getting behind to start with and not having to have to come back every single game and, and, and do something extraordinary to win games. However, in a weird way, I think at this point in the season, that experience really, really will serve TCU well. Because if they get down 10 points or 14 points early in this game to Michigan, they are not going to blink. And and Max Duggan, even in a loss in, to Kansas State in that Big 12 title game, he showed me something. I, I think Michigan's a really good team. But... I, I, I think TCU is a tough matchup. I think TCU, because they have the one position on the field that can be absolutely dynamic, and, and I think Max Duggan is really, really good. He's already announced that he's going to the NFL. He's going to play in the playoff. I, I, I got a funny feeling. I think TCU is going to win this game. I think it's going to be really close. I definitely would take uh, the points, obviously, um, but I, I think TCU wins straight up. I think they upset Michigan uh, in the Fiesta Bowl in Glendale, Arizona. So we're obviously going to spend a lot of time talking about the Peach Bowl, so we're going to skip that for now. Let's go to January 2nd because it's not over on Saturday. January 2nd, you've got the uh, the ReliaQuest Bowl in Tampa. Now what this is, is this the Outback Bowl? Okay, I don't know why Outback uh, gave this game up, but uh, it's in Tampa. The old Outback Bowl. Nobody's getting a Bloomin' Onion this year because I don't even know what ReliaQuest is, but I bet they're not going to buy everybody a Bloomin' Onion. Uh, I talk about this game for one reason, one reason only. This is number 22 Mississippi State versus Illinois. That's noon on ESPN2. Um, in the few weeks since I recorded for before the SEC Championship game, just tragic news out of Starkville where Mike Leach uh, had a heart attack and ultimately passed away. You know, Sometimes we we treat college football like it's real life, and then when real life happens, uh, it, it's kind of a cold slap in the face. So I think we're all going to be uh, Mississippi State fans. And so for those kids, for that program, for that school, everything that they've been through over the last few weeks, uh, really rooting for them in that game. So that is uh, January 2nd at noon, so Monday, next Monday at noon. Uh, we move from there into a game, two other games that will kind of be happening concurrently to that one, uh, the Cotton Bowl. A New Year's Six uh, game going to be played in Dallas. This is probably the one that everybody's like the least interested in, right? So, number sixteen, Tulane, the uh, the the group of five entrant to the playoff or to the New Year's Six this year, and number ten USC. Uh, that's one o'clock on ESPN. Obviously, you got Caleb Williams, the Heisman Trophy winner. If you heard his speech after. Uh, winning the Heisman Trophy, I thought it was excellent. And and I'm going to take a second to say there were a lot of Georgia fans on social media that were critical of Caleb Williams. Uh, and, and it was in defense of Stetson Bennett, who was a Heisman finalist, surprisingly a Heisman finalist. Um, but a lot of Georgia fans, not, not a good day for Georgia fans to be on social media talking bad about Caleb Williams. I thought his speech was excellent. The fact that he brought his entire offensive line to the ceremony and recognized them during his speech. Um, and the fact that he immediately started talking about how he has one mission and he and Coach Riley have uh, one goal. And, and they're going to come back next year to try to achieve that goal, and that's to win the national championship. I was really impressed with Caleb Williams. Um, 
I, I don't really understand why Georgia fans can't just be happy <laughs> that we are where we are, doing what we're doing, playing the way we're playing. Um, anybody else getting any kind of credit right now seems to bother Georgia fans, and that's something we gotta we got to work on because uh, that is not an attractive quality. We spent 15 years being mad at Alabama fans for being grumpy winners. Georgia fans need to be better. Um, all right, getting off that soapbox, let's talk about this game. Uh, I don't know anything about Tulane. Okay, let's be honest. I don't know anything about him. Um, the one thing I know about Caleb Williams is that he will probably be able to do just about anything he wants to do in this game. The question, it was the question all year for USC. The answer ended up being that they were not good enough. But the question about USC is the defense. Uh, so I don't know who Tulane has. I don't know, you know, how effective they can be, but it seems like playing in this game, they're going to be super excited to be there. Not sure about USC's motivation. I assume that USC will win this game, but I would not be shocked. We we have seen this game be an upset. So you've got the when the group of five team gets into the New Year six. Obviously, Cincinnati made the playoff last year, and Alabama, you know, pretty well controlled that game. But when you see this game happened. This is where we've seen some some pretty significant upsets. Uh, so I would not be shocked if Tulane won this game, but when you've got a player like Kayla Williams that seems to be pretty motivated, the Heisman winner, uh, I would assume that they would pull the game out. But in looking at this game and kind of thinking about all of these games leading up to this, I just want to make a quick point about the Pac-12. Um, we're going to have to watch some Pac-12 next year, guys. I, I know it's late on the East Coast. It's hard when the game's kicking off at 10 or 10.30. Bo Nix back at Oregon, Michael Penix Jr. back at Washington, the Heisman Trophy winner back at USC, DJU, he wasn't great at Clemson, but he's going to get a fresh start uh, with Mike Riley apparently at Oregon State. That's not official, but that's what's been rumored. Uh, you've got UCLA still there, and they, they've become you know pretty good over the last couple of years. Uh, Pac-12 is going to be very interesting, and that, that excludes Utah, who's won the Dad Blaine Pac-12 the last two years. So, uh, going to be really really fun in the Pac-12 next year which is kind of sad because next year is the last year of the Pac-12 before USC and UCLA bolt to the Big Ten. All right one more game that's happening uh, in the middle of the day on January 2nd next Monday you've got number 17 LSU at Purdue or versus Purdue that game is the Citrus Bowl in Orlando also kicking off at one on ABC uh, LSU by a million that's all I got to say about that. All of that leads us into the Rose Bowl next Monday afternoon in Pasadena, California. Number 11, Penn State versus number 8, Utah. That's 5 o'clock kick. Uh, ESPN and the Rose Bowl will get what they want, what they almost, you know, torpedoed the entire uh, playoff expansion talk just to be able to shoot the San Gabriel Mountains over the the Rose Bowl when that stupid game comes on TV. Um my goodness, that just, uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google it. You'll figure it out. Utah, so tough to beat. So impressive what they were able to do all season. You know, they started the season by losing to Florida, which just seems insane at this point. Um, but they were just they were just tough all year. Penn State, I don't even know how good they are. Um, the one thing I wrote down about this game is U- Utah, uh, even though they're not one of the two Pac-12 teams going to the Big Ten, they are without a doubt the Big Teniest 
of all the Pac-12 teams. Last year's Rose Bowl against Ohio State was an absolute classic and just so much fun. It seems impossible that this game could be that good. I like Utah in this game, uh, and I just hope it's fun. It'll give us something to do uh, in the last major college football game before the national championship game, which will be a week after this game kicks off. So that is your bowl preview. There's a lot going on over the next few uh, weeks or days and week. Let's pivot now and take just a couple of minutes to talk about what the expanded playoff would have looked like based on the final college football playoff rankings this season. All right, I don't want to take up too much time because obviously we've got a lot to talk about with the Peach Bowl. But using this year's playoff rankings, what would that 12-team playoff look like that we're going to get in 2024? Now, just as a a little bit of a reminder, the way this is going to work is your top four, the, the top four ranked conference champions are going to get buys. So even if they weren't ranked in this order, you have to be a conference champion to get by. So you those teams would be ranked one through four. Then you just take the committee's rankings, five, six, whatever, and you get the next eight teams to fill it out. All right, so here's what we would have gotten this year. Obviously, Georgia one and Michigan two. Now, the conference champion bit is where things get a little bit screwy. Clemson would have been three. Utah would have been four. So Georgia, Michigan, Clemson, and Utah would all have gotten buys in the first round. The rest of the rankings, the host teams would have been number five, TCU, number six, Ohio State, number seven, Alabama, and number eight, Tennessee. The last four in would have been number nine, Kansas State, number 10, USC, number 11, Penn State, and number 12, Washington. With the first team being left out, I mentioned this in our bowl preview, number 13, Florida State. So you think about Florida State, you think about the season that they had, they would have been knocking on the door to the college football playoff. So that would have given us first-round matchups that would have fallen like this. you got Washington at TCU with the winner playing Utah. Penn State at Ohio State in a rematch with the winner playing Clemson. This is the one that has got to make you a little bit interested. USC at Alabama with the winner of that game playing Michigan. And then finally, Kansas State at Tennessee with the winner of that game playing Georgia. So if the home teams all won those games, your quarterfinals would have been Utah and TCU, Ohio State, Clemson. Alabama, Michigan, Tennessee, and Georgia. So, you know, I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about this, but when you look at it this year, just using this year as the example, you get a really nice, wide, inclusive playoff. The SEC would have three teams. The Big 12 would have two teams. The Big 10 would have three teams. The Pac-12 would have three teams. And the ACC would be the conference that kind of got shorted this year. Only one team, because Florida State, as I mentioned, would be the first team out. And to me, SEC, Big Ten, Pac-12, three teams from each of those conferences means that you have the entire country covered, right? You have the whole country that's going to be interested uh, in this playoff rather than the playoff that we got where, you know, the West Coast is not really represented represented in any way in this playoff. And, you know, it – 
obviously if USC would have won that game, they could have been in the playoff and, and we wouldn't be in this situation. But just the reality of what happened, um, we keep excluding big parts of the country in in the playoff. And so when it comes to ratings and all of these other things, it, you know, you've got half the country that just maybe is not super tuned into that. So I think the 12-team playoff, I've, I've said it many, many times on the show, so we won't belabor the point. I think the 12-team playoff is going to be great, and that's what it would look like if it was in effect for this year. Let's cut it off there. Let's get to it, and let's talk about the Peach Bowl in Atlanta on Saturday night. All right, I have got a lot of information to share about this game. So we're going to figure out some kind of logical way, hopefully, to break this up and make it uh, at least uh, two segments here, just so we don't have to uh, to go on and on and on and just break it up just a little bit. So we'll see how it goes. But Peach Bowl, Saturday night, uh, New Year's Eve, this will lead you into whatever uh, New Year's uh, celebration that you are doing. Um Georgia, Ohio State, I mean, it, it it doesn't get much better than that when you talk about teams at the top of college football. And before we jump into the game, I want to talk for a minute just about the way we got to this. Now, Georgia and Ohio State have only played one time, which almost seems impossible with just the, the storied history of both of these programs. Uh, but the last time and the only time they ever played was on New Year's Day in 1993. That was the Citrus Bowl, Georgia won 21-14. The best thing that has happened so far in the lead-up to the Peach Bowl was Will Muschamp having the opportunity to talk to the media earlier this week. During the season, Kirby speaks for Georgia. That's it. That's a Nick Saban holdover from the way he does things at Alabama, but you don't talk to assistants uh, at Georgia. You talk to Kirby. Uh, there was a one press conference prior to the season where the assistant coaches talk. The two coordinators, offensive and defensive coordinators, will do media one time before the season. Now, but as a part of bowl prep, they're obligated to do press conferences. So, Will Muschamp got to talk, and he played in that uh, Citrus Bowl in 1993. The opposing quarterback in that, that day playing for Ohio State was Kirk Herbstreet. And uh, if you haven't seen the clip, go Google it and find it. Uh, it was very funny to hear Will Muschamp talk about the fact that as soon as they saw Kirk Herbstreet throw the ball, they knew they were going to win the game. So want to talk about how we got to this matchup a little bit because I, I didn't uh, get an opportunity to do a show after the playoff announcement happened. Um, I think this is probably the most difficult year that the committee has had because while I think it was very obvious after Championship Saturday who the four teams were, I just think there was a lot of dynamics into how to rank them. And and, and maybe I'm overthinking this. Um, you know, I talked about it before conference championship weekend that I thought if things played out the way they actually ended up playing out, I thought Ohio State would be three and we'd have the Michigan-Ohio State matchup in the Fiesta Bowl. And I thought that was something the committee would want. Um you know, you can look at this from a few different points of view, and I'll, I'll try to cover all of them. You know, in my head, from a rating standpoint, you play that Fiesta Bowl at 8 o'clock on New Year's Eve, and you've got, you know, what is undeniably right now the best rivalry in college football happening. You know, it's on a, I, I know people will get frustrated with the New Year's Eve situation. A lot of people already have plans and stuff like that. But, I mean, it is what it is. You you can't play on New Year's Day this year because you're, you should go head to head against 
the uh, the NFL. So obviously they're not going to do that. But even playing it on January second, you, you just you you mess with it too much. They they made deals with the Sugar Bowl and the uh, most mostly the Rose Bowl to have those like dedicated time slots on on New Year's Day or January second, whichever one. And so that they were just a little bit stuck. So I obviously we'll probably be moving off of New Year's Eve once the playoff expands. But all of that aside, to me, as a college football fiend, another Ohio State-Michigan game a month after the last one is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But, obviously, the committee felt another game that we already saw on a neutral site after Michigan beat Ohio State at Ohio State would kind of be punishing Michigan a little bit, maybe. And maybe they didn't think the interest would be there the way it will be for having Georgia and Ohio State play for only the second time ever. Now, as a Georgia fan, the only thing that I will say is, while I'm not scared of Ohio State necessarily, I don't think there's any doubt that Ohio State is, outside of Georgia, the most talented team in the playoff. You know, they lost to Michigan. They've lost to Michigan two years in a row. That's obviously a bad matchup for Ohio State. We're going to talk about that over the next little bit. But Ohio State, if you look at the the rivals' two four seven composite ranking, they are the number three most talented team when it comes to recruiting. Um, extrapolating the recruiting classes over multiple years, they're the, the third most talented team in all of college football. Alabama's one, Georgia's two, Ohio State's three. So coming into this year, Ohio State was ranked number two. They set at number two for pretty much the entirety of the season, um, up until losing to Michigan. So it's a little bit of a punishment for Georgia to have to play Ohio State in the first round when you have TCU sitting there, and I don't think there's anybody that's not a TCU fan that wouldn't say that they're the least talented of the four teams in the playoff. Now, I've picked TCU to beat Michigan, so I obviously think that that is um, a a game that TCU and Max Duggan and Sonny Dykes, I, I think they can win that game. I think they will win that game. But just from a, you know, the way you perceive the teams, the way the committee talked about TCU all year, I think it's pretty obvious they did not rank TCU super highly. And they made the decision. And that's what it was. This is this was not some kind of moral, well, we have to do it this way. The folks in that room made the decision they didn't want the rematch. And that if, if Ohio State and Michigan win their semifinals and you get the rematch in the national title game, so be it. But they did not want the rematch, and I'm a little surprised about that. Um, I get it. You know, if, if that was the calculus for the best TV product, I, I do understand it. They need ratings. Again, I'm just I, I am what I am, and I'm a college football fanatic. And having Ohio State and Michigan play in a semifinal would be awesome. And and in doing it this way, you don't guarantee that game. So I would have taken a guarantee on that game because usually that's the highest-rated game every year. So, anyway, we'll move off of that. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the Buckeyes. They're coming back to the college football playoff for the first time since 2020 when they lost the national title game to Alabama. I talked earlier about Dabo turning into a little bit of a clown. To me, he started his clown descent uh, ahead of the 2020 playoffs when Clemson got absolutely boat raced by Ohio State. Uh, if I can't remember what he actually ranked them, but they re-ranked Ohio State something like 14th or something going into that game, and Ohio State just absolutely smacked Clemson around. Sorry, Jeremy. Um, but then Alabama absolutely smacked Ohio State around. Um, 
They've only lost two games the last two years, Ohio State, but both of them have been to Michigan. So not only have they not won the Big Ten in two years, they haven't won their division in two years. And frankly, uh, in a way that Georgia doesn't have, we have so many rivals at Georgia. We don't have the one. You know, at a, at a time, you know, you might say that Florida was like the one, but it's not like that. And, and again, this is where Georgia fans need to be able to have some perspective and appreciate what other people have. Ohio State-Michigan is a very unique rivalry. Because no matter what, if you beat that team, if you beat your rival, it's a good season. The reality is there were plenty of years. 2004 is a, a perfect example. Georgia beat Florida. Whoopee. Yay. But Georgia lost to Tennessee. Georgia didn't play for the SEC championship in a year that they had a team that could have potentially played for the national championship. Turn around uh, in 2007. Georgia beat Florida. That was the year we stormed the field. Yay, it's a great moment. We had the blackout against Auburn, but we also lost to South Carolina and Tennessee. Didn't make the call, didn't make the BCS championship game. So for Georgia, there is not a comparable rival to try to explain what Michigan and Ohio State means to the two programs. And despite the fact that Ohio State's been eleven and one the last two years, in all honesty, they might as well be 0 and 12. Because if you don't beat Michigan as an Ohio State fan, player, coach, whatever, you achieved none of your goals. None of them. You they they didn't make the Big Ten championship game. They didn't make the you know, couldn't win the Big Ten because they weren't in the game, couldn't make the playoff, couldn't win the national championship because of that one loss. So as much as on paper, hey, twenty two and two in two years, that's really good. Not really. And the fact that they're in the playoff almost seems counter to how people feel, Ohio State fans, feel about where the program is right now. Because for so long, Ohio State dominated that rivalry, and it seemed like the Big Ten Championship um, and, and and playoff you know opportunities were Ohio State's birthright. There was a period of time in the last 10 years where Ohio State's biggest uh, obstacle was not Michigan, but it was beating the Iowas of the world and beating Purdue and those kind of games. Those were the teams they lost to that kept them out of playoffs in previous years. They've dominated Michigan. The fact that now they're you know, in the playoff, but losing to Michigan is, is something that I think is a really kind of odd dynamic. Uh, over the course of this season, they started the year beating Notre Dame in what was the marquee game. I believe it was two versus five uh, to start the season, the biggest game of the opening weekend. Um, but that win was a little bit lackluster. Uh, they dominated their schedule all the way through October, but then there were some times in the middle of the season where they just didn't look like people would expect them to look. We're going to talk more about the Big Ten as we go along today, but they beat Penn State 44-31 to in Happy Valley. That was a big noon kickoff. It was a good win over a good team on the road, but for most of that game, Ohio, or Ohio State just didn't seem to take advantage of their opportunities. Penn State was obviously not on Ohio State's level, and yet they were in that game until two late defensive plays for Ohio State kind of busted it open. And I mean late, like last six minutes of the game. Um, one week later, they had some weather issues. It was really windy and, and, and adverse uh, weather conditions at uh, Northwestern, but they only won that game 21 to seven and 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 it was just unimpressive. They didn't look like a big high top of the the rankings college football team. Um, they played a really tough game against Maryland. They only beat them 43 to 30. I mean, and they gave up 30 points to Maryland. So let's just say it out loud. So 
there were times throughout the season where Ohio State didn't look great. Now, to give some kind of comparable here, all year long, people covering Georgia on the national broadcasts, because they don't get to dive in, even the way that I do on this show, people covering Georgia nationally would talk about the Missouri game. That's always the one. You go back to the one time Georgia didn't play well. Well, there were multiple Missouri games for Ohio State this year, just multiple games where they didn't play well. And then obviously at the end of the year, losing to Michigan in a similar way to the way they lost to them last year, in a non-competitive game where in the second half they wore down, Michigan dominated, and just out-physicaled them. That was probably the the – the one way they could have lost on a last second field goal on a back and forth game. And it might not have felt quite the same, but they got punked in the second half of that game and they didn't have an answer. So a little overview of Ohio state season. Let's jump into this. Now I want to kind of go position by position on the offensive side of the ball. Then we'll kind of take a little break and talk about the defense and then come with a, a final kind of prognostication for the game. CJ Stroud, uh, another Heisman Trophy finalist, uh, great season. 60 cents, 66% completion percentage, 3,340 yards, 37 touchdowns, six interceptions, eight sacks on this season. Now, when you really break down his game-by-game stats, he took advantage of the weakest teams on their schedule, and there was a lot of teams that are weak on that schedule. Against Michigan, which obviously the biggest game of the year for them, 31 of 48, 349 yards. Uh, He had two touchdowns, so obviously that part of the stat line, really good, but he threw two picks, two important picks, and he got sacked once. Against Penn State, 26 of 33, 354 yards, a touchdown, no picks, got sacked twice. Northwestern, I talked about the bad weather, 10 of 26 for only 76 yards, no touchdowns. So... Stroud is very good. He's really accurate from the pocket. Um, What he's not is mobile. And, you know, stereotypes, you would assume that he would be a a mobile quarterback, but he is not. He's not mobile at all. And so the, the dynamic with Stroud is he has the ability to really hurt Georgia from the pocket, but he's not great when he gets pressured. And in the last two years, despite the fact that He had so many good stats against Penn State and Michigan. There were times in those games when he was ineffective because they were able to pressure him. So the the formula for Georgia is very, very simple. Pressure C.J. Stroud. All right, let's look at the other quarterback. Now, I just told you all the stats, but I'll remind you of some of them for Stroud as we go through. Stetson ended the season after the SEC championship game, 68% completion percentage, 3,425 yards, 20 touchdowns, 6 interceptions, 7 sacks, He also had seven rushing touchdowns, so 27 total touchdowns for Stetson. Um, He had a higher completion percentage. He threw for more yards. He did not throw for as many touchdowns, 37 to 20. If you factor in Stetson's rushing touchdowns, which Stroud had zero rushing touchdowns on the year, total touchdowns 37 to 27, so a significant advantage there for Stroud. Both of them threw six interceptions on the season, Stroud sacked eight times, Stetson sacked seven times. To me, the biggest difference is that Stetson's best games were the biggest games. Against LSU in the SEC Championship game, 23 of 29 for 274 yards. That's nearly 80% completion percentage, 
274 yards, four touchdowns, no picks. Against Tennessee, 17 to 25, 68% completion percentage, 289 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Against Oregon, he was almost perfect. 25 of 31, 81%, 368 yards, two touchdowns, no picks. Now, a lot of what I'm going to talk about, because I've done a lot of research, obviously, getting ready for this podcast and just kind of digging into this game. And so much of what you're hearing on podcasts and in the previews and the little, you know, the little segments that ESPN's doing to talk about the game as they promote in all the bowl games, every halftime show, they're talking about the playoff. Well, the national narrative is that Stroud is a great quarterback and gives Ohio State the best chance to win because he's just so much better and that that is a big advantage for Ohio State. Statistically, that is just not the case. Stroud has 10 more touchdowns on the season, but the completion percentage, passing yards, interceptions, and sacks, they're pretty much all the same. Stetson attempted, listen to this Georgia fan, Stetson attempted more passes than Stroud, completed more passes than Stroud. So as much as the narrative going into this game is that it's Ohio State's juggernaut offense against the juggernaut defense of Georgia, and that Georgia is going to play, you know, they're a running team. and all. No, they're not. They're not. And we're going to keep coming back to this as we talk about it through the day. So much of the narrative is because these national folks, they don't have the time to really watch every game. And I, I assume that by the time we get to the game on Saturday night, Herb Street and Fowler will talk about this because they will dig in and real and try to set it up that this ain't Georgia from 2017. This, this ain't Georgia from 2019. This ain't Georgia from 2020. This Georgia team is different. They throw the ball a ton. Yes, we still run the ball. Now, the way we do it, I think, is the biggest difference. You know, a lot of people are not really looking at the numbers. They're going off the field. Ohio State's explosive. Georgia's kind of a grinded-out team. That's the way the teams feel. But the reality, if you look at it, is that if Ohio State has an advantage at the quarterback position, it is small. And I mean really, really small. I think it's a push between the two quarterbacks. Now, let's talk about the targets for those quarterbacks. Now, the biggest problem for Ohio State has been injury. Jackson Smith and Jigba, the probably the best wide receiver in all of college football, he played against Notre Dame, didn't really play much, and did not play the rest of the season. Immediately after the playoff was announced, he announced that he's going to the NFL and he is not playing in the playoff. So, that leaves some really good receivers. Marvin Harrison Jr., 72 receptions, 1,157 yards. That's averaging 16.1 yards per catch and 12 touchdowns on the year. Absolutely spectacular. Probably the best wide receiver in all the nation. Emeka Egbuka, 66 receptions, 1,039 yards, 15.7 yards per catch, and nine touchdowns. Their third receiver, Julian Fleming, 29 receptions, 462 yards, again, right at 16 yards per catch, and six touchdowns. Their tight end, Cade Stover, 35 receptions, right at 400 yards, average 11.4 yards per catch, and five touchdowns. In all, Ohio State has five players who got more caught more than 10 passes on the season. Contrast that with Georgia. We got Bowers, 52 receptions, 726 yards, and six touchdowns. McConkey, 51 catches, 675, and five touchdowns. McIntosh, third best receivers are running back, 37 receptions, 449, and a touchdown. 
Washington ended up with 26 catches, 417 yards, and two touchdowns. Marcus Rosemey Jack Saint, 27 receptions, 303 yards, two touchdowns. Georgia, the grinded out team, the SEC team that likes to run the ball, nine receivers who caught more than 10 receptions this season. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that Harrison and Ebuka, Ebuka, I can't say it, I'm done, I'm done, are the best two receivers on either team, right? The best two wide receivers. But Bowers is probably the most dynamic player that's going to be on the field. And while the offenses are a lot different, the consolidation of wide receiver talent that Ohio State has reminds me a lot of Tennessee. And I don't say that as an insult, that's just the reality. Tennessee, if you remember, they had Jalen Hyatt, and then they had uh, a couple other guys, but it was like, it was all top end. And Georgia just plays differently. Top to bottom, it's all about depth. Georgia's going to play a lot of guys. So you're not going to have anybody that has 75 receptions the way that Jalen Hyatt did for Tennessee, the way that Harrison Jr. does for Ohio State. Not going to put up those same numbers. But what you are going to have is so many other weapons, and Stetson is so good. His best strength is the willingness to throw it to whoever's open. And all year long, that's been the theme for this offense. The drop-off from Harrison and Abuka to the rest of the guys that Ohio State has seems to be significant. And it's, it reminds me a lot of last year when the top two receivers, Mechie and Williams, for Alabama, when they had both of them in the first half of the SEC championship game, it seemed like Alabama could beat Georgia any day of the week because you had two just amazing players. But then Mechie got hurt in the SEC championship game. Williams got hurt in the national championship game. And it was obvious at the end of that national championship game when Alabama had an opportunity to come back late before the interception that sealed the deal, there were multiple plays where Ohio State had receivers that couldn't make plays. Now, it wasn't like they just dropped balls in the middle of the field, but it was 50-50 plays where they weren't able to make them. Ultimately, Harrison and Abuka account for about 59% of all the receptions Ohio State had this year. Both teams like to throw it a lot, but Georgia's offense is way less dependent on singular performances and singular guys. Now, what that means is that as good as Ohio State is with those two receivers, Georgia, again, kind of has a pretty simple game plan. Now, the game plan is simple. Executing the game plan is not simple. So stop those two guys. There's two guys you got to stop. Okay, if they're going to beat you with their third and fourth guys, you'll live with that if you're Kirby. But you can't let Harrison and Abuka be the ones to beat you. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. Let's pivot, talk about the running backs a little bit. Mayan Williams is the top running back for Ohio State. 125 carries on the season, 817 yards, 13 touchdowns. Travion Henderson, uh, 107 carries. 571 yards, six touchdowns, and then their third running back, Dallas Hayden, Dallin Hayden, sorry, uh, 102 carries, 510 yards, five touchdowns. Now, the big problem for Ohio State, Travion Henderson is out for the playoffs, so he is not playing in this game, and if they beat Georgia, he won't play in the national championship game. So Mayan Williams, their number one guy is there. They have Dallas Hayden, who's gotten a lot of carries, 102 carries, um, obviously played a lot, but they're a little thinner at running back than they would be if they had all of their guys. On the other side, Georgia is completely healthy for one of the first times all year. Kenny McIntosh, 
137 carries on the year, 709 yards, 10 touchdowns. Dejon Edwards, 127 carries, 681 yards, and 7 touchdowns. And Milton ended the year, 72 carries, 533 yards, and 6 touchdowns. Williams been the number one back most of the season because Harrison's been dealing with those injuries. He's got four 100-yard games this season. But this is this is just what it is, okay? 817 yards, 13 touchdowns. 189 of those yards and five of those touchdowns came in a single game against Rutgers. Rutgers. He had a solid game against Notre Dame to open the season, but he wasn't a huge factor in either the Penn State or the Michigan games. Hayden, because of the injuries to Harrison, got more carries as the season went on. He had a really good game against Maryland and Indiana in November. Um, But when you look at it, just like Georgia's passing game, the running game is running by committee. All three backs haven't been healthy all year. And Kendall Milton is the one that hasn't been healthy. I don't think McIntosh has had significant time that he's missed. And uh, Edwards, I don't think you can hurt him. Now, I've said that, and I've jinxed the kid. But uh, he he is just a wrecking ball. So he hasn't missed any time at all. Milton, to me, is a little bit of the X factor here. He showed some real explosiveness towards the end of the season. He had a 34-yard run against Mississippi State a 44-yard run against Tech, and a 51-yard run against LSU. It was big plays in the running game and the passing game, but big plays in the running game that really hurt Ohio State when they played Michigan. So that's something to keep an eye on. We'll finish up this part of the preview by talking about the kickers. Uh, It's a push, okay? Their kicker, Noah Ruggles, 69 of 70 on extra points, 15 of 17 on field goals. The longest he made this year was 47 yards. You got to think, though, Ohio State, the Big Ten, they're playing outdoors every single week. So the the wind and everything being a factor there obviously will not be a factor inside Mercedes-Benz on Saturday night. We know Hot Pod, Jack Podzlesny, uh 61 of 61 on extra points, 23 of 26 on field goals. The longest he made was 50 yards, but from 40 up, 40 yards and up, he was only 3 of 6 this year. So he did miss a 40-something yard field goal. Uh, in the SEC championship game in Mercedes-Benz just a couple of weeks ago. So we'll cut, we'll take a pause there, and we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about the defensive side of the ball, which I kind of struggle with a little bit, and we'll talk about just give you just more statistics than you ever wanted to know. So as, as I already said, I, I kind of find it difficult to break down defenses. Um, Georgia has a great defense. Uh, and has played really well against some of the best offensive teams in the country, like Tennessee and Oregon. And and the reality is I haven't watched an entire Ohio State game all year. I would have watched Ohio State-Michigan, but I was at the Georgia and Tech game, uh, so I didn't see a minute of it. The game that I saw the most of from Ohio State was either uh, Notre Dame, where I watched most of that, and then Penn State. And, and they weren't, as I said already, they weren't super impressive or dominant in either one of those games. So I went to the stats. Um, and we'll talk in a few minutes about the problem with going to the stats, but but let's just talk about a few things. We'll start with total defense, okay? Georgia is eighth in the nation this year in total defense, 4.7 yards per play uh, allowed, about 292 yards per game. Ohio State, number 11, 4.88 yards per game, 304 yards per game on average. So essentially, no difference. Scoring defense This is a little bit of a gap here. Georgia is number two in the country this year at 12.77 points per game. 
Ohio State, number 13, uh, at 19.25 points per game. So about a touchdown difference. Eh, six and a half points difference there uh, in, in, in scoring defense. Now, total offense, Ohio State, seventh. This is their strength, right? 492.7 yards per game. Uh, Georgia is eighth at 491.9 yards per game. So eight-tenths of a yard per game is the difference uh, in total offense between these two teams. Scoring offense, again, a little bit of a gap. Ohio State leads there. They were number two in the nation in scoring offense, 44.5 points per game. Georgia was uh, a little bit lower. They struggled. Offensively against Kentucky, and that kind of hurt them toward the end of the season. A number 11, 39.2 points per game. So about a five and a half point difference there. Uh, so then you start just kind of digging into more and more stats. Okay, so let's think about red zone. Red zone defense, Georgia number one red zone defense in all the nation. 28 trips into the red zone for opponents this year, only 17 scores. Nine touchdowns, eight field goals. So out of 28 red zone trips, nine touchdowns. That is really remarkable, and that's why they're number one on red zone defense. Ohio State, this is the one stat that I found that was much different. Ohio State is number 122 in the nation. 23 times opponents got into the red zone against Ohio State. They scored on 21 of those opportunities, 14 of those being touchdowns. So um, this is where... Georgia offensively and defensively because Georgia was number one in red zone offense. 71 trips into the red zone and Georgia scored on 69 of those occasions. Of the 71 trips, 48 of those ended up in touchdowns. Ohio State was number three, 58 trips into the red zone. They scored 55 times, so only three times that they didn't score. 44 of those times were touchdowns. So for Georgia, The red zone defense is a significant advantage over Ohio State, but Ohio State's red zone offense is probably the best that Georgia's seen all year. So that probably is still a little bit of a push, even though statistically it's not really. We'll keep rolling here. Third downs. Georgia, number five conversion rate on third down. Uh, 51.6% of the time Georgia gets it on third down. Ohio State, number 19, 46.1. So about a 5% difference there, but not huge. Third down defense, Georgia number three in the nation. Opposing offenses only convert on third down about 27% of the time. Ohio State number 11, only about 31% of the time. Penalties, Georgia 18th in the nation, gave up 58 penalties throughout the year. That's about four and a half per game, about 46 yards per game in penalty yardage. Ohio State 43, 69 penalties a game, 5.75 penalties per game, uh, and about 50 yards. So, again, Basically the same. A big difference in these two teams is turnover margin. Ohio State on the season was a plus seven. They created 17 turnovers. They only turned the ball over 10 times. Georgia's a minus one. They forced 16 turnovers, which is about the same number Ohio State did, but Georgia turned the ball over 17 times throughout the season. Time of possession, Georgia number eight in the nation, 33 minutes per game. Ohio State uh, number 49, but... That's only three minutes, so they have 30 minutes of possession per game. So the stats show that these two teams on paper are very, very similar. So the biggest question that I have coming into the game is about the level of competition that Ohio State's been playing. The reality, and we talked about the the rivalry earlier, but the reality for both Ohio State and Michigan is it's essentially a two-game season. You, you got Penn State and the other team, right? 
So if you're Ohio State, it's Penn State and Michigan. It's a two-game season. Ohio State also played Notre Dame this year, but but those games, Ohio State, uh, sorry, those three games that Ohio State played, Notre Dame, Michigan, and Penn State are the only three opponents that Mich- that Ohio State played throughout the year that ended up ranked at the end of the year. Now, for Georgia, they had five opponents that they played during the year that were ranked at the end of the season, and they were undefeated when, obviously, uh, Ohio State lost one of to one of those three big games to Michigan at home. All right, there's some X factors I haven't talked about yet that I kind of want to slide in here before we give our final prediction. First of all, and I alluded to it a little bit earlier, but Stetson Bennett's legs, the biggest difference, and anybody who listens to the podcast all year knows – I love it when Stetson runs. I think that's something that, you know, going back to last year, the biggest difference between JT Daniels and Stetson Bennett was Bennett's ability to use his leg, extend plays, and run. And while the offensive line has been a lot better this year than last year, they've they've really progressed. Um, the reality is that Bennett still has that dynamic to where Check one, check two, check three, take off. You know, he he had one carry against Tennessee, but it's the one everybody remembers because he ran that touchdown in early in the game. And so those plays are not only important for Georgia's offense, and they really give a boost when your, your quarterback's able to kind of pick up a first down on a broken play, but they are demoralizing to a defense because think about it. When a quarterback is scrambling, that means the opposing defense has done its job. It took away the primary options on that play, and for the quarterback to then just make a singular play to be able to kind of negate all of the good things that the defense would have had to do to stop the offense on that critical third-down play, well, now their quarterback just went out there, and the quarterback looks like he could be you know, an accountant. He just went out there and picked up the first down, and instead of being off the field, it's first and ten. Um the ability to get out of the pocket, extend place, run with the ball when needed. Um, that's a huge difference in these two quarterbacks. It's a huge difference in these two offenses. Stroud is not mobile. He didn't get pressured a lot this year, but it seems pretty obvious that Jalen Carter and Georgia's defensive line will be able to get some pressure. Whether they can pressure him you know, all night long, probably not. The two tackles for Ohio State are going to play in the NFL, so that's the talent gap right like the, the talent gap between these two teams from a the kind of the the starters and the backups it's a very small talent gap Ohio State unlike many teams that Georgia plays Ohio State's just about as talented as Georgia however when you have a singular player like Jalen Carter that can do what he can do there's no way and this has historically been where Ohio State has struggled when they've played against SEC opponents the lines of scrimmage now, it's also fair to say, I think, that Georgia's defense overall is the best that Ohio State's played all year, but Michigan is probably the closest comp. And and Stroud threw for about 350 yards, but he also threw two picks and he got sacked once. Ultimately, because they fell behind in that game, Stroud threw the ball 48 times against Georgia. Now, everybody in the country is really excited because LSU, in the second half of that game, uh, in the SEC championship game, LSU had a lot of success throwing the ball. But... The circumstances of that game cannot be ignored. I, I, I'm not th- saying that Kirby was very happy that Georgia gave up all of those yards in the air in the second half of that game, but at no point was LSU within two scores of Georgia with the ball. They, they just weren't, and Georgia's offense scored all day. That's why they scored 50. So 
yes, Georgia gave up some big plays on the back end in the second half of that game, but the game was kind of put away. So I don't know how much, if I'm Ohio State, I don't know how much I'm depending on the SEC championship game is pretty much over and LSU has some success with a backup quarterback. I don't know that that's the formula that I think is going to take me through this playoff game. Georgia loves defensively staying with the defense. Georgia loves to play man-to-man in the secondary. Georgia's ability to play man-to-man is why they beat Tennessee. So going into this game, as I kind of talked about when we talked about the receivers a few minutes ago, can Keely Ringo and Kamari Lasseter hold up against Harrison and Ibuka? And if they can, and, and what does holding up mean? They don't have to be perfect. They're going to get beat some. But if they can stop Ohio State from making big plays, I think Ohio State's going to find it very, very difficult in the run game and after the catch. So we talked all year, you know, about the ability of Georgia's defense to be the best tackling team that I can remember seeing. Now, those averages, those yards per catch averages that we talked about earlier, that includes yards after the catch. These guys average like 16 yards per catch. But that's not just the pass, that's the pass and the run. Georgia's ability against Tennessee to play good defense and make Tennessee make a couple of mistakes, it puts a lot of pressure on the quarterback and the receivers to not make any mistakes because Georgia's always there. If you could just tackle them, you know, it's an eight-yard out, tackle them. You tackle them, and now it's second and two. And that doesn't sound really bad, but it's better than first and ten if the guy breaks the tackle and gets a first down, right? The ability to sustain drives is the thing that Georgia has stopped other teams from doing. We talked about the third down conversion rate earlier on defense. Teams under 30% getting first downs against this defense. So if you can just get them to not be perfect on first and second down, you can get off the field on third down. And Georgia's shown an ability to do that all year. It's going to be difficult for them to run the ball. Now, I don't think they can give up on the run, but we talked before the Tennessee game about how Tennessee's offense is actually predicated on the run. I don't see how, if Ohio State can't consistently run the ball, I can't see a one-dimensional offense beating a Kirby Smart defense, period. I don't care how good the receivers is. I don't care how good the quarterback is. If you are one-dimensional, you're not going to be able to beat Kirby consistently, not for four quarters. Now, the one thing that always makes me nervous when Georgia starts playing playoff games, bowl games, whatever, how will the officials call the games from a pass interference standpoint? Now, the SEC plays a certain style, and the receivers in the SEC, the cornerbacks in the SEC, are used to playing that style. And when you're watching an SEC game, you don't really ever notice it because it's just the way that the, the game is called in the SEC. But against Tech, <laughs> when those ACC officials were calling the game, Georgia got absolutely killed with pass interference calls, with holding defensive holding calls by playing physical. Georgia plays physical. They can't go into this game expecting to not be able to play diff- uh, physical on the outside. So if there are a couple defensive holding calls, if there are a couple PI calls early, 
it's going to be interesting to see, one, if that affects Georgia's willingness to continue to be physical, if the, the flags will continue to come, or if Kirby has to do something along with Bull Muschamp and Glenn Schumann, if they have to make some adjustments as the game kind of progresses, if the officials are going to call it really tight on P.I. Now, on the other side of the ball, Georgia's ability to get open, because there's just so many options on the uh, or weapons offensively, I don't know which way. I mean, I, I just think if Georgia's able to play physical defense the way they want to, it's going to make it even harder on Ohio State. But, you know, as long as they call it consistent, I think Georgia will be able to adapt. They've shown the ability. They did it in the Tech game. They showed the ability to make some adjustments at halftime and, and be better. But if they don't call it both ways, if the officials are allowing or not allowing Georgia to be physical and maybe giving a little bit more to Ohio State, and I feel like that has happened some in the past in these playoff games, it could get a little screwy. The ultimate X factor is Kirby Smart. Now, in my mind, for my money, Nick Saban, right now, the greatest coach of all time. But right now, the best coach in college football is Kirby Smart. Uh, Georgia made a huge step last year going from contender to champion, but Kirby has taken a team that lost so much last year and has navigated them through the SEC undefeated and won the SEC championship. Now, I think I've said it before. I think this is Kirby's best coaching job at Georgia because to get those guys, and even though the talent level is way better than it was in 2017 when we got to the national championship game, to have the experience and everything that happened after, you know, the parade and all the accolades and all uh, a whole summer of we won the national championship and it had been 41 years and all of that, to refocus this team after losing so much talent to the NFL and graduation and all the rest of it, to take these young guys and get them ready to play week in and week out, to handle the adversity like they had on the road at Missouri, to be ready to play against Oregon first week of the season, to manage that third quarter when Florida started playing a lot better and Georgia seemed to like lose it for a few minutes, to be ready to play the biggest game in the history of Sanford Stadium against Tennessee, and then to be ready to go on the road and play a tough Mississippi State team after that and a tough Kentucky team after that. This has been so impressive from Kirby Smart to have this team ready, and I don't have a shadow of a doubt that Georgia will be ready to play on Saturday night. On the other side, Ryan Day has lost the only game his fan base cares about for two years in a row, and he seemed totally unwilling or unable to make adjustments in the games against Michigan to do anything. And I think that's the biggest difference. Go all the way back to 2017, that Rose Bowl. Georgia's getting absolutely boat raced at halftime by Oklahoma. And what happens in the second half? Georgia comes out, makes some adjustments, stops Oklahoma enough to get to overtime and win the game. Kirby's great at making in-game adjustments. You even saw it on kind of a completely different level against Tech. 10-7 to at halftime. Georgia's sputtering. Things aren't working. Georgia comes out, makes some adjustments on both sides of the ball, pulls away with that game. He often seems, he being Ryan Day, often seems timid in big moments. There was a key fourth down play where they punted against Michigan when the momentum was going against them and it was kind of felt like, hey, we, we got to have something on this drive or, or this game's going to get out of hand. He, he punted on a fourth and short situation uh, right around midfield and that moment kind of seemed to take any hope away from Ohio State because it was obvious that he didn't trust his guys to go out there and get a fourth a, a short fourth down. 
the reality is that Michigan has pushed Ohio State around each of the last two years, and Georgia is Michigan, but on steroids. Georgia's going to be physical on both lines of scrimmage, and ultimately, I think Georgia wears Ohio State down. I think the game is probably relatively close in the first half, but the depth and the run game of Georgia are going to be way too much for Ohio State over the course of four quarters. The biggest thing, the biggest thing that is being missed in the lead-up to this game is that Georgia is by far the best offense that Ohio State has played all year. The national media has not adapted to this version of Georgia. I'm talking 2022. I'm not talking about 2021, 2020, 2019, 18, 17, or Mark Rick Georgia. They have not been able to understand what this Georgia team is capable of. And offensively, this is a completely different team. This team, this defense is nowhere in the same galaxy as last year's defense. They are still one of the best defenses in all of college football by every statistical measure. And performance-wise, obviously they are. They gave up 30 points to LSU. They've given up 22 twice. They've gave up 21 time. Every other game has been in the single digits or in the teens, right? So Georgia's defense is very, very good. But it's not the same kind of defense. They're not as dominant as they were last year. And yet this season, this offense has been absolutely transformed. I think Ohio State can be successful against Georgia's defense to a point. But what nobody is considering is how in the world is Ohio State going to stop Georgia's offense? And the answer is they're not going to. Georgia will score and score and score, and they're going to win the game, and they're going to cover the 7.5, and and they're going to go play for another national championship. Dogs 48, Ohio State 27. Go dogs, go dogs, go dogs. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this week. I hope you enjoy bowl week. I hope you enjoy New Year's. And I hope I'm back with you early next week talking and breaking down a potential Georgia National Championship game for the second year in a row. Dog fans, let me remind you, these are the good old days. Enjoy the crap out of them. Don't take it for granted. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, go dogs.